Father God in heaven, we bow before you. So thankful for the opportunity uh, to worship you, even if it is virtually, um, to give you the praise and the adoration that you are due. And Father, right now, God, we bow before you because um, we want to express our need of you, our need of your word to um, impact our hearts and our lives, to uh, grip our hearts, to transform us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we humbly come before you now, and we ask, God, that by the power of your word and spirit, you would engage hearts and minds right now that our hearts would be sensitive to all you have for us today, that you, Lord, would strengthen our faith and teach us, Lord, to walk in obedience out of great love for you and your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would do this now in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're not there already, why don't you take your Bible and turn to Ruth chapter 3. And I've entitled this message, Active Faith. Active Faith probably heard the joke before of the man who is stranded on um, an island in the middle of the ocean. And as he's there thinking about how he's going to get off, he, he figures out that he'll simply just pray to God and ask God to rescue him. And as he's praying to God and asking God to come and rescue him, a man floats by in a dinghy and says, hey, jump on board. I'll rescue you. Let me take you to shore. And the man says, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And so as the man continues to pray for God to rescue him, a cruise ship goes by in the distance and they see him and they circle back around and say, hey, come climb aboard. Let us take you to shore. Let us rescue you. And the man says, no, that's okay. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And as he continues to pray for God to rescue him, a helicopter circles above him and lets down a rope ladder and calls out to him, come on up, we'll rescue you and take you ashore. And the man says, no, that's okay. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. Well, as the story goes, the man dies and he goes to heaven and he's dumbfounded. And so he looks at God when he gets there and he says, God, why didn't you rescue me? And God looks at him and says, I sent you a dinghy, a cruise ship and a helicopter. It's like, what more do you want from me? It's a great reminder, listen, that what is often required of the people of God is not a passive faith, but an active faith. And especially in light of God's providence and how we see God working and providing. And we need to be people who step out in faith. Faith in the God who is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As we drop into chapter 3 in the book of Ruth this morning... God's unfolding plan is becoming clearer and clearer. Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, are seeing God's kindness and provision through a man named Boaz. And all three characters in this chapter take incredible risks that make them vulnerable, but ultimately they all are demonstrating an active faith in the Lord. From them, we learn what active faith requires. And so let me show you first from the text that active faith requires informed initiative. Active faith requires informed initiative. And let's look at verses one through four this morning. It says this, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Notice here that Naomi comes up with this plan of action. But I want you to see that this is a plan, this initiative that she takes to form this plan is an informed initiative. And you ask the the question, well, informed by what? Informed by the Word of God. It is deeply informed by the Word of God, not just by the providence of God and how she's seen God working out His plan for them, but it is deeply formed by the revealed Word of God. And it's important as we drop into chapter 3, we're at this halfway mark point in the book of Ruth, it's probably a great time for us to go back and actually remember how we got here in the story. And if you remember back to chapter 1, we're reminded, um, by the way, that the book of Ruth occurs at the time of the Judges, the book of Judges. And the book of Judges ends with this phrase, this idea that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the word of God had been abandoned. Um, Submission to God into his word had been abandoned. And the people of God simply did whatever they wanted in total rebellion against God. And it's in this context that we come to the book of Ruth. And at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we find out that there had been a famine in the land of Israel. Now, again, this is an indication, if we know our Bibles, specifically Leviticus chapter 26, we know that the famine is more than likely a result of the disobedience of God's people. They rebelled against God's word, and God did what he promised that he would do. He brought consequences, curses upon the land. And now what we find out is that there was a man named Elimelech who's married to a woman named Naomi. And rather than turn back to God in repentance and faith and obedience, what they do is they abandon the land of promise. They leave the land of Israel and they go over to the land of Moab, Israel's historic enemy. Again, this is just a reminder that the context we find ourselves in is one of disobedience. And in chapter 1, we find out that this decision to go into Moab is devastating for Naomi. Naomi um, has her husband Elimelech, and he ends up dying. Well, uh, we know this from the story in chapter 1, that Naomi has two sons, Mahon and Kilian. And both of them are married to two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Well, Naomi's sons both die. And here, three widows are left in this tragic situation. Their hearts must have been filled with fear. Um, It was devastating. It was really a death sentence in many ways to be a widow in this culture. No way to provide for themselves. No way to sustain themselves. But all of a sudden, they get word that God had visited uh, the land of Israel again. And he had brought bread, so to speak, back to Bethlehem, which means bread basket. And here is an indication that the people of God had done like what they had done back in the time of the judges in that cycle, that cyclical pattern. They had likely begun to turn back to the Lord in repentance, in faith, and believing once again in the word of God and obeying the word of God. And so what we find out is though there's bitterness in chapter 1, though there's tragedy, we get a glimmer of hope, light in the darkness as we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Ruth picks up this mantle of responsibility. 
And she decides that she is going to try to provide for Naomi and herself to find sustenance. And so she wanders off into a field, hoping that she can, according to the law of God, glean from the edges of the field and, and bring home some kind of food and sustenance to provide. Well, it just so happens, as the word of God tells us, that she stumbles into the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech. And he is, as the text tells us in chapter 2, one of their redeemers. And in chapter 2, we see that Boaz, he is a man of God, and he is clearly loving the Lord and following the commands of Scripture and going above and beyond. And he begins to care for Ruth and, by extension, Naomi, her mother-in-law. He provides in abundance. He's so gracious and caring. He invites her to take a seat at his table and he sends her home heaped up with grain. And as Naomi comes, excuse me, Ruth comes home to Naomi, here Naomi asks the question, where did you get all this? This is unbelievable provision. And Ruth is able to say, it's from Boaz. And in here, Naomi begins to put the pieces together. She's connecting the dots. She's seeing God's providence at work, but she's also seeing how the word of God is being followed faithfully by Boaz. Again, she links this idea of Boaz and the provision that he's making to the word of God, noting that he is one of their redeemers. This concept of the redeemer is so critical to understanding how this story is unfolding. It's the Israelite custom that there, if there was a widow or an individual who lost everything, that they could sell themselves or their land um, into a, a lease agreement, but there was an opportunity for their land and themselves to be redeemed, to be purchased out of this problematic situation that they had found themselves in. It was a gracious provision of God found in his law. And it was generally the next of kin that would be that person who would purchase you out of it. You see, God had built this into the law. In Leviticus chapter 25, for example, verse 24 and 25, we read this, And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption, notice this language, of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells his part of the property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what, is his, bro what his brother has sold. We also know from the scriptures that there was this Leverite law or custom that was built into the word of God. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, for example, where if somebody's husband had died, their next of kin, their nearest relative, would actually marry um, the, the widow and provide offspring to carry on that family line, the family line of the brother. You see, why, why, why were these two things built into the law? This is incredibly important to understand. This was to flesh out the Abrahamic covenant. It's a declaration that God is faithful to his word. You see, in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham, and by extension to the people of God, that he was going to give them land and offspring. And so these were visible ways that God was reminding them of the covenant that he had made to Abraham, a covenant that they were a part of. Physical reminders that God is faithful to his word. God can be trusted and therefore his word can be trusted by his people. It's so helpful for us to see this backdrop as we enter in here to chapter 3. You see, here in chapter 3, some time has gone by, 
But these provisions of the law, they provide this beautiful backdrop to understand Naomi's actions and the plan she comes up with. And in verse 1 to 4, this plan is, is unfolding. It's beginning to unfold. But here's what I want you to see first, that her plan is... Um, put into action on the basis of what she knew of God's law and the circumstances that had brought it about. See, based on this, God's providence and God's word, she took the initiative. So here we see Naomi concocting this plan. And one thing that we learn, by the way, from this that we can pull out as a principle is that prayer and planning go together. God calls us to pray, but God calls us to plan. And as Proverbs reminds us, a man may plan his ways, but the Lord directs his paths. That is a call both to trust in the Lord's direction, but to also be someone who plans carefully. Here, Naomi and Ruth realize that they are two women in poverty, that they need help and they need hope. And in this cultural context, they need someone to come and redeem them and rescue them. And look at the plan that she comes up with here. She tells, essentially, Ruth to go and wash herself, to prepare herself, to go get dressed and get ready. And she tells her to go out then and to secretly um, find Boaz at a specific time to uncover his feet and to see what he does. Now, this plan demonstrates great faith. It demonstrates an active faith, and it demonstrates an informed initiative. You see, Naomi is exercising here the logic of faith. She's putting God's words side by side with her circumstances, and she uses her mind to determine a course of action that is in harmony with God's revealed will. This is so vitally important for us because so often we make decisions without consulting God at all. We leave prayer by the wayside. We fail to open the word of God and to consult God's revealed will. We don't go to God's people for counsel or wisdom or advice. And listen, while God's word may not give us specific answers to every question we face in life, it for sure gives us definitive principles by which we can make decisions in this life that are pleasing to him. Informed initiative must start here by being informed by God's word. That's where it started with Ruth and with Naomi. That's where it must always start with us. This is how we are called to live our lives. In fact, Paul in the New Testament, he gives us the same advice in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. A very familiar verse, right? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. She says, get the word of God in you. Be so saturated with the word of God so that you know the will of God for your life, that you're able to discern and make wise decisions, that you can take informed initiative and exercise an active faith that brings honor and glory to God. Being informed is one thing. Taking initiative is another. You see, initiative ultimately requires a great degree of trust. 
And here again, Naomi is demonstrating a trust that Boaz is going to do the right thing. But I want to argue that this is actually a demonstration of her greater trust in the Lord. She has been watching God work out all of these things. She's trusting, yes, that Boaz is a godly man, but she is ultimately trusting in the God that Boaz serves. She has seen God's hand at work. It's undeniable in the pages of, of the book of Ruth. God's fingerprints are all over her story. Even the tragedy, it's becoming clear to her that God has been at work even there. You know, the knowledge that God is sovereign and providentially working out his plans should not keep us from taking action in our lives. I think many of us use God's sovereignty as a crutch for inactivity. Sovereignty is not a call to simply be passive in our faith towards God. God's sovereignty actually also calls us to have a risky kind of faith, to step out in faith, to actively trust God, even in the hard things, even when we can't always see how things are going to turn out, what God is ultimately going to do. That is certainly the case here for Naomi. This is a huge risk that she is taking. I want to apply this kind of thinking uh, as an illustration, but also as an application to the area of marriage. Since this is a romantic story that's developing and Naomi is in the process of playing matchmaker, let's think about how we can look at informed initiative when it comes to marriage. How often do you hear people say like, how do I know if this is the person God wants me to marry? Right? A classic college question. How, how can I be sure that this is the one that God wants me to marry? Let me tell you how you don't know. Simply by intuition, by declaring somebody simply your soulmate because you want them to be, not simply by physical attraction, but listen, by looking at the decision to marry somebody and lining it up with the word of God. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying you shouldn't be physically attracted. I'm not saying that you shouldn't want somebody to be your soulmate, whatever that means. But what I am saying is this, the word of God actually gives us so many principles to go on when we're making these kinds of decisions. For example, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know this, you cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, that God calls you to marry another believer. So you can simply ask the question, is this person a follower of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, Okay, then you can move forward, but, but you can go deeper than that. Does this person love God? Are, are they somebody who is devoted to the Great Commission? Are they a, a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ? I don't mean are they perfect or are they, are they at the heights of spiritual maturity, but are they demonstrating what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ and how they live their lives? If the answer is yes, then, then great. You can tick another box and continue to move on. You can even go further than that and say, is this the kind of person that I will love sacrificially if you're a man, that I will love the way that Paul says in Ephesians 5 to love? Is this a person that I can devote myself to like that? You see, I, I simply say that to say like the word of God gives us so much wisdom and, and principles to act upon, to know God's will. And so then if you kind of tick all these boxes, then in the words of Beyonce, if you like it, then put a ring on it. Go for it. <laughs> Naomi demonstrates here biblically informed initiative that should apply to all the decisions of our lives. And that's really what I want to impress upon you, loved ones. 
that we must be a people of the word of God, a people of the book. The church must be a creature of the word. We must consult the word of God for everything we do. We must bleed the word of God so that all of our decisions are striving to be in line with the will of God to bring honor and glory to him as spiritual acts of worship. God gives us responsibility to make decisions. Let's make them with our Bibles open, with our heads bowed in desperate prayer, in consultation with the body of Christ and those who are wise and mature in the things of the Lord, walking forward in active faith. Secondly, notice this, that active faith requires a diligent devotion. Diligent devotion. In verse 5 through 9, we begin to see this plan um, coming to fruition. And look at what it says in verse 5. And she replied, this is Ruth, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight... The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I love this. You see incredible devotion here in Ruth, don't you? I mean, devotion to her mother-in-law. I love the humility there, right? I'll do, I'll do whatever you say. I'll follow this plan. And then she goes and she does as her mother-in-law commanded her. What humility she displays here. But such beautiful, diligent devotion to follow through with this plan. And you see, Ruth here too is trusting both in Naomi and Boaz, but ultimately again, she is trusting in God. We know that in verse 1, she has had this conversion experience where she makes this amazing statement to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Right? She has surrendered herself to the God of Israel, and she has identified herself with him and with the people of God. And she is now walking this faith out in diligent devotion to God, in this beautiful trust in God. And this plan, by the way, is risky. There is risk all over the pages. And if you were reading this when it was first written, as this story unfolds, this is a very dramatic scene where it's all of a sudden beginning to provoke you and make you ask questions and cause you to wonder how this is going to turn out. I mean, this is a very big deal. What she's doing here should not be missed. So she gets all dressed up. She, she gets, you know, cleaned up. She puts on her most beautiful clothes. She puts on even some perfume, and she gets ready for this blind date. And this is really the ultimate blind date. Boaz doesn't even know what's coming. And here you say, well, what exactly is happening? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what this is indicating. This is demonstrating that her period of mourning for her own husband is actually over. It's come to a close, and she's now making herself available for marriage. And so that's what she does. She goes to the threshing floor. In verse 6, we find out. Now, the threshing floor was a community place in the time of the harvest where all of the farmers would go down 
and there was a large piece of either flat bedrock or stamped down earth. And what they would do there in, in a kind of a community setting is that the men would winnow down the barley. So Boaz would not have been alone this night. It's important to understand. This is why so much of this is being done secretively. Also, this is unusual in terms of the way this is happening. It's very unusual for a woman to approach a man like this, especially one who is a servant going to a master. This looks very precarious. So here, Boaz would have been down at the threshing floor with all these other members of the community. They would have winnowed the barley. And then they would have had this bit of a celebration, a little bit of a party, and then they would have then gone to sleep. Now, I want to make it very clear here that what is being indicated is not that Boaz is getting drunk. I think, actually, we're supposed to see a bit of a contrast taking place here. While some might be getting drunk, what we see here is this sense of fulfillment and contentment in this man of God and its contentment in the provision of God. He sleeps easy at night because he knows the God who provides all of these good things. Ruth sneaks in there kind of watching and waiting till everything's died down, figures out where maybe a Boaz has fallen asleep and she navigates her way through the crowd and through the people and she does exactly what Naomi tells her to do. She uncovers his feet. You say, that's so strange. Like, what in the world is going on? Well, first, I think this is one of the things God uses to wake up Boaz. In the middle of the night when the the temperature is dropping, all of a sudden his feet are exposed and it jolts him out of the sleep that he was enjoying. But I think there's something else to this as well. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, historically, this scene has been long debated. And some people look at this and and they see that maybe Boaz was drunk and that there's um, maybe some sexual impropriety being insinuated here that that maybe somehow Ruth was going down to have this maybe this offer herself sexually to him and um and and by I think there's maybe um intentionally from the author this insinuation that 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 could have been there but I think what the author wants to demonstrate is that that has no place in the mind of either Boaz or Ruth well, maybe that would have been commonplace and in those who do not love God, that is not the way this is unfolding here for Ruth and Boaz. This certainly seems to be perplexing and confusing. It's done in the secrecy of night and, and, and while somebody is sleeping. There seems to be an indication that this could pose some temptation to sin. And there may be some truth to that, It's possible that Boaz could have taken advantage of the situation, taken advantage of of Ruth. But I I think here what we see is that he's an upstanding man and he refuses to do that. I think it's important to also see this story in contrast to another story that we find in Genesis 19. I want you to think about for a moment, if you know your Bibles, how the Moabites actually came into existence. Now, remember, throughout this story, the author is reminding us over and over and over again that Ruth is a Moabite. She's a Moabite. I mean, they went down to enemy territory with the Moabites, and the author clearly understands the origins of the Moabites and all that's wrapped up with that. In Genesis 19, remember that God rescued Lot and his two daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah. And while they were hiding out in fear in a cave, 
Here's what happens. They begin to realize his daughters that they don't have any family line. They're hopeless. They're widows. They're in despair. How in the world are we going to have offspring and carry on our family name and, and find provision and security and what they can provide for us? And so instead, here's the con, instead of following the word of God, instead of being obedient, they devise a plan together. Can you hear the contrast here? But their plan is to get their father drunk on wine and to sleep with him. And that's exactly what they do. Both of them, they get him drunk, they sleep with him, and the firstborn has a child, a son, whose name is Moab, and he becomes the father of the Moabites. Here, listen, here, there is a plan being concocted by two women. And there is a man who is merry and enjoying life. But what we see here is that there is no sin involved. They prioritize obedience, diligent devotion to God himself and to his word. And what's fascinating, listen, is that where the Moabites were birthed in sin, they will ultimately be rescued by righteousness. And this, I believe, prefigures the way that God is going to include these Moabites who are not a part of the covenant people of God because of sin will be grafted in because of righteousness. And this is, by the way, how anybody gets into covenant with God. It is by righteousness, just not our righteousness. Rather than giving in to temptation and sin here, Boaz remains diligently devoted to the Lord. He is, as the text tells us in chapter uh, 2, a worthy man. In other words, he is a righteous man. Rather than taking matters into her own hands and sinfully trusting in her own sinful devices, Ruth remains diligently devoted to the Lord and to the law of the Lord. And what we're going to find out in the rest of this chapter is that she is deemed a worthy woman, a righteous woman. This is a great reminder, by the way, loved ones, that we ought never to mistake temptation for opportunity. Temptation is, however, an opportunity to remain diligently devoted to the Lord, to find ourselves uh, as the people of God embracing Psalm chapter 1. Those who are blessed of God, who refuse um, to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord and who meditate upon it day and night. You see, when you choose obedience to the law of God, you are choosing blessing. How blessed is the man, how blessed is the woman who refuses sin and who enjoys obedience to God and his word. And you see, active faith always requires active obedience. Always. And our greatest blessing, by the way, of all comes through the perfect obedience and perfect righteousness of the one that Boaz ultimately is pointing us to. It comes ultimately from the lineage of Boaz, from the ancestor of Boaz, from Jesus Christ himself, who is, by the way, the fulfillment of Psalm 1 as well. He is the blessed man. He is the one who perfectly keeps the law of God and fulfills it in every way. You know, our sin has caused a separation from God. It has distanced us from him. It has made us rebels and enemies, and it has made us deserving of God's wrath. And Romans 5.19 says these words for us, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. While sin came through Adam and all of humanity are, are now sinners because of Adam's sin, sinners by nature and sinners by choice, we can be made righteous through one man's obedience, both his passive obedience and being willing to be put to death and pay for our sins, but also through his active obedience and perfectly fulfilling the law of God so that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ can be applied to our account. True redemption comes from perfect righteousness. I love how this story continues to unfold. Verse 8 and 9, at midnight, Boaz, the man, was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? That's a, that's a really great question to ask when somebody is lying at your feet in the middle of the night. She answered, I love this, I am Ruth, your servant. And then she goes on to say, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In ancient culture, this would have been understood as a request for marriage. She is proposing marriage, in a sense, to Boaz. And this beautiful picture, spread your wings over me. It indicates this idea of shelter and protection and intimacy and a life with me. Come under my umbrella of protection, in other words. But this language also echoes something spoken of in the previous chapter. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz prayed these words about her, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He prays this blessing, and he, he acknowledges that she has come under the protection of God. She has bound herself to the God of Israel by faith in him. And it's as if she's taking that same language and saying, Hey, Boaz, remember what you prayed for me? Maybe you're the answer to that prayer. Hey, Boaz, I believe and I trust in God and his word, and, and I believe that you do too. This idea here of spread your wings, that word wings can also be understood and translated as the corners of your garment. And I think this actually makes sense as to why, not just practically speaking, um, she uncovered his feet, but symbolically speaking, she uncovered his feet. In other words, he wakes up and he sees his feet uncovered. And then she says, spread your garment over me. And in effect, she's saying, in the same way your feet are uncovered and they're exposed and they're cold and they're in need of protection. Listen, so too am I like your feet. And in the same way you'd cover your feet, cover me as well. Why is this beautiful, beautiful picture? I love how bold she is. I love the courage that she demonstrates. It's a great reminder, listen, that courage and humility are not in opposition to each other. They work together. You can be bold and humble. You can be courageous and humble at the same time. I mean, think about how courageous this is. Think about what would have happened if Boaz refused her. This is a huge risk. This would have been utter humili humiliation. Her reputation would have been ruined if people found out this is what she did, which, by the way, is why she does this secretively. She's risking herself in this moment. I, I love the example she sets for us of diligent devotion to the Lord because I think about how often we are paralyzed by fear instead of propelled by faith. 
how we, we look at what maybe God is calling us to do and, and how God is calling us to step out in faith, but we're ruled and governed by our fear, our fear of what other people may think of us, our, our fear of what other people may say about us. And listen, if, if I can just maybe say it like this from a New Testament perspective, if you are afraid of what other people are going to think about you, if, if that controls you, it's going to be very hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Because signing up to follow Jesus Christ is putting a bullseye on you. It is welcoming and it is inviting persecution. And here we need to be reminded, listen, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be more concerned about what God thinks of us than we're concerned about what others may think of us. Our goal is faithfulness. And here he asks this, this question out of being startled, who are you? And I love this. I love what she says here. Notice, I am Ruth, your servant. Do you notice what's missing here? For the first time, we don't hear the words, Ruth the Moabite. And I think this is a little nod, a signaling to the fact that she has a newfound identity. She understands that her identity is no longer rooted in the Moabite people as an enemy of God, but instead it is rooted as a child of God. She's no longer defined by her past, but by her faith in God and the works demonstrated by her faith. Again, back then in this culture, there was a sense of prejudice against the Moabites considering their history, their origins, but, but also their, their history as it developed and their opposition to Israel and the God of Israel. They were an idolatrous, wicked culture who sacrificed their own children to their false gods. But here is a Moabite who has professed faith in God who is defined by that faith in God. And I love this because this can be true for all of us who are finding their identity in God. It can be true for you today if you've not yet found your identity in God. Sinful living, foolish decisions, a history you're not proud of, past actions that you've done, they don't need to define you. Your faith in Jesus Christ is your identity if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He now becomes the one who spreads his garment over you, the one in whom you find all of your hope and your healing and your identity. His forgiveness, his righteousness. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ accepted by the Father. Not because of anything you could do, but because of everything Jesus has already done. And her diligent devotion is a response to God's grace. She sees how good God has been, and so she is so diligently devoted not to earn God's grace, but because she has received God's grace. When your identity is bound up with God, you need not fear, but you can walk in faith diligently devoted to God above all things, and lastly, we see this, that active faith requires patient persistence. Here we see in verse 10 how Boaz responds. It says this, and he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Again, there's that term of, of acceptance, that familial bond. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He commends her. Obviously, there's an age discrepancy here and she could have made herself available for much younger men. But instead, instead, she wants to follow the law of God and do it the way that God has designed it. 
And now my daughter, he says, do not fear. I love that. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Her reputation is unbelievable. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet, here is the problem, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's trying to protect her reputation here. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and he put it on her. And then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I love this because you see such a blend of patience and yet persistence that I think characterizes the kind of faith we are to demonstrate. There is a problem, obviously, and the problem is that there is another kinsman redeemer, one closer in line to redeem Ruth and Naomi. But notice this, he doesn't panic. He makes sure that Ruth doesn't panic either. He, he tells her, don't have fear. But I think about when things don't always line up in our eyes, how quick we are to panic. I, I know how often my default position can be to panic instead of to trust God. And I know this, that in our panic, it will often produce impatience that will cause us to cut corners. And you see, what we find out in this story is that obedience demands that we not cut corners, but have character that is conformed to the righteous law of God. And Boaz is consumed with doing the right thing. He's consumed with God's will, but more than that, he's consumed with doing God's will God's way. In other words, he will not let expedience trump obedience. What a great word for us. We can't force God's hand. We can't rush ahead of God. We need to be people who know God's will, but who are committed to do it God's way. If the matter, by the way, was not dealt with here rightly, this could call their whole marriage into question. This could damage their reputation, and ultimately it could damage the reputation of the God they say they love and serve. Again, this is why it's so vital that we are a people of character who are concerned to do things God's way. Because our reputation is at stake. And by the way, the Bible tells us that we are to be concerned about our reputation. In fact, the elders of the church are to be thought well of by outsiders. That's reputation. But more importantly, we are concerned about our reputation because we are most concerned about the reputation of our God. And we know that we reflect on Him, the one we say we love and serve. The law of God must be fulfilled in order for there to be true intimacy and security here in their marriage, in their covenant. I love that because that's the way it is with us and God. God has to fulfill the law for us to experience true intimacy and security in Him. And here in a moment of great temptation, Boaz chooses to do things again God's way. He's not a lawbreaker. He's a law keeper. 
Active faith requires a patient perseverance, the commitment to consistently do things God's way, patiently pursuing um, and persevering in obedience, trusting that God will be faithful if we choose to do it His way. And we're all tempted to do things our own way. We're all tempted to rush things forward. Now, in moments of temptation, we must acknowledge that there's always a way of escape. And that way of escape, listen, loved ones, is always righteousness. It's always obedience. It's always God's way, not our way. Being a faithful disciple is about, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. And Boaz here accepts responsibility, responsibility of acting for their good on the basis of God's word. What a great example for us to follow. Active faith means accepting the responsibilities that God's word sets out for us. And in this beautiful story, notice that everyone here acts in faith for somebody else's good. Everybody is looking out for the good of the other. We need to be reminded that this is how God calls us to express our love for him by how we love one another. How fitting in this season of isolation, again, that, that God would call us to consider those who are in need, to reach out and to meet those needs in practical ways, to demonstrate our commitment to Christ by our commitment to serve and bless and love one another. Boaz finishes off this section by making a promise to Ruth. He is patient, notice this, but he is persistent. Lay down here into the morning. We don't need to rush this forward. He's protecting her. He's preserving her reputation, but he is patiently longing to do this God's way. Listen, patience, loved ones, does not mean drag your feet. Oftentimes, again, we excuse our inactivity and we want to call it a patience or waiting on the Lord when oftentimes God has been more clear than we'd like to admit and we simply need to move forward in faith, believing that God is going to be faithful to his word and to his people. Certainly, we don't want to be hasty. We don't want to be um, rash with our decisions. We want to use wisdom and we want to do things um, the right way in God's time. But when we have all the information we need, when it's clear God's word has been clearly speaking to us, and when God's providence has been on full display, we need to step up and take the risk and walk in active faith. Boaz says that he will act promptly. He's going to resolve this matter tomorrow. He'll move as quickly, in other words, as he is able without violating the clear commands of God. And he gives evidence of his commitment to act. He hands to her arms full of her six measures of grain. Another reminder, listen, I will take care of you and God is taking care of you. She goes home, explains the situation to Naomi. And Naomi's words are so great. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In other words, where the first verse in this chapter began with a longing and a seeking for rest, here, after pursuing God's will, God's way, at the very end, Naomi can say to Ruth, now we can rest. It's in his hands. God's going to be faithful. Active faith is when you know what God is calling you to do and you do it. That's persistence. 
An act of faith is when you do it God's way. That's patience. That Boaz would be a redeemer, by the way, is just a hint of what God had spoken of before in the book of Exodus, where God called himself a redeemer, rescuing his people out of their bondage in Egypt, liberating those who were helpless and needy and could not liberate themselves. And you see, Boaz is ultimately pointing us forward to the redemption that's offered in Jesus Christ who rescues us from the bondage of sin, who liberates us from the power of sin, and who redeems us from the penalty of sin. This is all a reminder that God has always had a plan from eternity past to redeem his people. And we need to be reminded that Boaz is leading us physically through his line, but symbolically and spiritually through his example towards the one who would pay the price for all of our sin and redeem us by giving his life for ours. His sacrifice points us towards the sacrifice of Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. And you see, it's Jesus who truly shows us active faith in the end. He models in the incarnation for us an informed initiative, Jesus Christ our Savior, knowing the will of God and executing the plan of redemption from eternity past. He teaches us diligent devotion, that Psalm 1 picture, walking in perfect obedience to the law of the Lord, not only meditating upon it day and night, but literally embodying it day and night, fulfilling the law perfectly in our place because we never could. And finally, he shows us patient persistence, doing God's will, God's way, marching to the cross, giving his life to redeem ours, refusing to take a shortcut, refusing to give into the temptation of Satan to do it uh, in a crossless way. Instead, declaring that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is the fullest example we have. May we praise him for his active faith and obedience. And may we faithfully follow, not only in the footsteps of Boaz, of Naomi, and Ruth, but of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make this so in our lives. God, we see such beautiful examples of what it looks like to walk by faith, informed by your word, longing, Lord, to be devoted to you and to patiently walk in your will, your way. God, make us these kind of people who, Lord, live in this way because we long, Lord, not only to receive blessings from you, the blessings that come from obedience, but because we long to bring glory and honor to your name above all things. God, thank you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, embodies all of this perfectly. And we can look to him to find, Lord, that he has done this on our behalf to redeem and rescue us. And we can look to him and follow in his footsteps. Give us the grace to do this, Lord. Give us joy in our doing. And Lord, we pray that you would receive all of the honor and all of the praise and all of the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.